One of the joys of the COVID lockdown, which I'm not sure there were that many joys of it, but one of the joys was showing Adelaide and Sawyer and Emerald some of the television shows that we grew up watching, especially children of the 80s. So uh, they had never heard of the A-Team, and it was really great to show my kids the A-Team, and uh, Knight Rider, and the Dukes of Hazard. Uh, and watching these shows 40 years later, what you realize is that they're really silly. Uh, the plot lines were r- ridiculous and unrealistic. And so you just kind of laughed as you watched this, thinking, this was really what primetime entertainment was. And one of the crazy things about those a- uh, 80s action adventure shows is how often characters would encounter quicksand and. Do y'all remember that? It's like every fifth episode, somebody was in the quicksand. Or piranhas. I don't know how they were always around piranhas and quicksand. But I grew up with an unrealistic fear that there was quicksand everywhere. And watch out when you go swimming because there's probably piranhas. Uh, They really played off our fear of what lies just beneath the surface. And what we learned from those 80s shows and how silly they were is you need to be very careful about what lies just beneath the surface because in those shows, it wasn't usually very good. And I'll say that in the church, it's not very good either, usually, is it? What lies just beneath the surface. We're pretty good about putting on a happy face. We're pretty good about putting on appearances. And we dress up and come to church... And we've learned how to make things seem calm on the surface. But did you know, and maybe if you're new to church, this will be news to you, but every single church in this town and in the neighboring towns and all through the state and all through the nation, all through the world, every single church, just below the surface of all the smiley, happy people, are problems. You're going to, and you say, well, this church isn't good. I'm going to go find another one. You won't find one that's good. You won't find one that's perfect, I should say. Because the church is made up of sinners. And if you look around here, there's a bunch of sinners that have gathered in one place. And so you've gathered a bunch of sins together, haven't you? And that's important to know. How do we deal with each other? How do we deal with the fact that we are redeemed, that we've been given a new nature, and we have a choice to walk in the Spirit or walk in the flesh, but we still sin every single day. So how are we supposed to relate to one another without ignoring all the gunk under the surface? How do we live together in full uh, uh, appreciation of the quicksand and the piranhas? Because they're there just right underneath the surface, aren't they? The things that can hurt and destroy relationships. The way that cause us to to need to constantly be uh, giving mercy and grace and forgiveness and to be repentant people. So as we look at our text this morning, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I gave myself a little extra time. Uh, That was not not on purpose. Uh, (laughs) Paul is going to, we're going to jump into these 10 verses, and Paul is going to drag up all that gunk out of the quicksand, and he's going to bring all those piranhas into the boat. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell, in their commentary on Titus, they say, in these 10 verses, listen to the gunk and the junk that Paul deals with. The sin that Paul deals with, to call it what it is. Immorality, 
immaturity, lack of reverence, slander, meanness, substance abuse, idleness, family breakdown, crudity, dishonesty, frivolity, disobedience, backtalk, and theft. That kind of sounds like the culture we're living in now, doesn't it? That sounds like the things we struggle with. Well, Paul knew that those people on Crete in those churches that Titus is gathering together and straightening out, they suffer from those things as well. So Paul, in this passage, Paul is teaching, and here's the take-home message, Paul is teaching that in the church... As we look at these verses, which are called a household code. So Paul's going to address everybody in the church and tell everybody, here's the way we need to be living if we're living as Christians. But what Paul is teaching is that everyone in the church matters. Every member of the body matters and plays an important part in the life and of the experience of the church. That's the first thing Paul teaches. And as he teaches this, what he is teaching, you and me, is that everyone in the church is responsible for making God real to somebody else. Can people look at my life, can people look at your life, and see that God is real? We are to live such a common spiritual life together that we proclaim and testify to people that God is real. God is invisible, but you're not. And so people should be able to see us, the people who've been purchased and redeemed and transformed by God. And just as we sang in the song, take it easy. You don't have to be something you're you're not. God knows exactly who you are, but He redeems us and saves us when we come to Him, and He doesn't leave us unchanged. His Holy Spirit takes and forms and makes us. And so we're transformed by a higher power, by the Spirit of God that's living inside of us. It's not just our own self-effort and self-will. It's by something God is doing as He works on us from the inside out to where we can testify to the fact that Jesus is Lord and that God is real. Is your life making Jesus real to someone today? The Gospel is experienced The gospel is expressed in the life of the church. And so it's important to remember, what is the church? Is the church this building? So many times our kids think that, right? We drive by the building and say, there's the church. The building is not the church. The church is not a club. The church is not a program. It's not something you consume. This is not a business you patronize. The church is who you are. The church is us. We are the body of Christ. And we are a people who are experiencing the gospel, who are expressing the gospel in different ways. According to whether we're male or female. According to whether we're young or we're old. and Whatever season of life that we're in. And so that's what's broken down here in these ten verses. How do we live our lives together in Olney, Texas, where our lives are weaved together like a beautiful tapestry that proclaims the wonder and the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's how the passage is basically broken down. There's instructions to Titus. There's instructions to men and women in their older years. There's instructions for younger women. There's instructions for younger men and Titus, as he's kind of lumped in there with the younger men. And then instructions to bond servants or to slaves. So let's go through these and we'll talk about each one of them. 
Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, Titus, he's been dealing with all these false teachers, and he says, but as for you, all these false teachers are teaching the wrong things. They should be silenced. But Titus, you should teach what accords with sound doctrine. And if you'll kind of cheat and look down to the 10th verse, you'll see that doctrine is mentioned again, the doctrine of God our Savior. So our passage, one way we would know that doctrine is important in this passage is that it's bookended. It starts with doctrine and it ends with doctrine. So let's remember that he's concerned about what they're being taught and we're being taught to live in such a way in these verses that lines up and accords with the doctrine that is sound. What is sound doctrine? Sound doctrine is that which is taught by Christ and by the apostles. So we want our lives to line up with the teachings we have in the New Testament of Christ and the apostles. The application here is that we can live in a way that demonstrates what we believe about God, what we believe about our Lord Jesus Christ. Or we can live in a way that denies what we say we believe. And what Paul wants us to realize is that we're going to be teaching people what we believe either way. What you truly believe will be worked out in the way that you live. We can't divorce doctrine from life. Some people think, oh, you go to seminary, you get a book and you learn doctrine. Where we really learn doctrine is in our heart. It's, it's what we believe and it's what we live out. It's what becomes part of us, our knowledge of God that, that is deeper than just knowing things about God. Listen, if you know things about God, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. Christians know God. There's a big difference between knowing somebody and knowing things about them. I, don't, I know things about George Washington. I don't know George Washington. But I know Melissa. You know, I know things about her. I know it's, but we have a, a knowledge of one another, a, an intimate knowledge of one another, a relationship with one another. We're best friends. And that's the way we should know God. We should have a relationship with God. And that is going to be, you know, if I say I, I know things about Melissa and I love Melissa, if I say I love Melissa and this and that, but I don't ever love her, if I don't ever serve her, if I'm not kind to her, is what I'm saying true or not? It's not true. You know, it's, we want to live a life that is consistent. I think that was a major part of our Sunday school lesson this morning. We're talking to the kids about their mission trip, and it's, it, it, Chris is right. You should uh, grab one of these folks that went on the mission trip and ask them what the Lord did and what they learned. And we were talking about what it's like to go on a mission trip, about how you go. I was telling them, you know, I've gone on like six mission trips. And I, I told them, I, they, they, sorry, I said, what did you learn? He said, well, I learned that really sharing the gospel is not that hard. And so it kind of started a conversation of saying, you know, it is something about when you go to another country, you go to another place. I don't know, it's just easier sometimes to share the gospel there because you don't know anybody. It's easy to go to Germany and be a witness because the people don't know you. And you don't know them. And you're going to be getting on a plane in a few days. And I've been on mission trips with guys uh, from churches before. And we were in another country. And I'm telling you, we were in a, the minute we hit foreign soil, it was like these guys turned into Billy Graham. <clears throat> or Mother Teresa rolled up into one. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? Why is he living out his faith here? Why doesn't he live it out back home? And of course, we all think about our, that about ourselves when we're on mission trips. But it's easy to be who you aren't for a few days. You can pretend for a few days, but when we get back home, it's harder to pretend, isn't it? 
Because people know us. They know how we live. They know what our priorities are by what we do. How we spend our time. The things that we say. And when we confess the gospel and we don't live it, what we really believe shows up in our actions. And you know who really learns from our hypocrisy? Our children. The people that we work with. The people we teach. A different lesson is caught often than the one that is taught. And that lesson that kids sadly learn from many parents that proclaim to be Christians is that Christianity is just lip service. When the rubber hits the road, when times get hard, when you get just below the surface, my dad's just like everybody else. He talks about a gospel that changes hearts and changes lives, but his isn't changed. His gospel has no power. We must not teach our children that lesson. We must counteract that lesson to show that our lives are truly changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these are the instructions Paul gives. Titus, teach these people what accords with sound doctrine. What does a life look like that is being lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ? First, instructions to mature men and women. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith. Okay, so you're sound in your devotion to God. Sound in love. You're sound in your devotion to one another. And steadfast. Sound in steadfastness. That means the older men should be devoted to never quitting. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Now, are you an older woman? Are you an older man? How do you know? It's weird because everybody's both, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you can say, well, I'm a younger woman, but there's women younger than you. You could say, I'm an older woman, but there's women older than you. So we all kind of find ourselves in these different uh, seasons relative to the people that we're dealing with. And always, though, when we think about younger and older, one way to know that you are getting older is you look at the younger people and you say, where do they get all that energy? Where do they get all that zeal? <laughs> They've got all the energy. They've got no responsibility. They're not tethered to a particular place. They can just all pick up and go to Germany. And they can stay up late and they can get up early and they can just go, 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 go all day long. How do the people do that? They're younger and we, we miss those days, don't we? Young people tend to be more emotional. They tend to be more expressive. They live with more abandon. And I really, as, I, as I'm approaching 50, you know, I miss those days, to be honest. I miss those days of my 20s. But as we age, we realize that many in the church who expressed zeal and fire, they don't have it anymore. They burned out. And when you get older, your faith starts to take a different shape. Faith begins to take the shape of dogged perseverance. The older people in this room, young people, listen to me. Here's the advantage the older people have over you. You may laugh at them and say, oh, they can't work technology, they can't do this, they can't do this. But here's the advantage they have over you. They've experienced sorrow. They've experienced loss. Along with all the joys that they've experienced. They've lived long enough to see it all and to see it all happen two or three times. And so Paul tells these older folks, he says, be sober-minded. Live in a way that's dignified. Be in control of yourself. 
He's saying, older people, take advantage of all your experiences and live out a serious Christian life so that these young people can see you and learn from you. We love to see the zeal of the younger generation. We will love, when y'all get up here and tell your stories about Germany, we are going to love it. But what do young people love to see? Young people love to see a saint who is stuck with it for decades and decades and decades and decades. That is what we love to see, and that is much more powerful than enthusiasm and zeal. Constant, committed, dedicated, never quitting devotion. And that is what we need from the one. We should not ever have it in a church where the young people are more mature than the older people in their faith. We as older believers have to show the younger ones what it means to stick with it. To show up over and over and over again. Men, let's live into these verses. And then notice the command to the older women. There's a specific command here to the older women that they are to teach what is good. Older women, are you teaching what is good? Is your life a living sermon for the younger ones that they can watch you as a model of living for Jesus? Somebody says, I need to know how to live for Christ. How am I going to be a Christian? A new believer comes to the faith and they say, what should I do? Could I walk them over to you, ma'am, and say, this is Tracy. Watch her and do what she does. That's convicting, isn't it? (laughs) But that's the kind of life that we're to live. But he's given this command to the older women. Teach what is good. Look at verse 4. And so train. As you teach, train the young women to love their husbands and children. To love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled. Pure. Working at home. To be kind. And submissive to their own husbands. Why? that the Word of God may not be reviled. Now, I'll admit, when I opened up chapter 2 and started to study and I came to verse 5, you can just imagine how thrilled I was to stand up and preach to the women that they need to be submissive to their husbands. And this is one of those verses where when you preach it and you're the preacher, you know there's a little bit of resistance and pushback. All right, But I've thought about this, and here's the question I ask you, especially for the women that hear, young women that hear that and just think, I don't like those verses. Do we serve a wise God or not? Do we serve a wise God? And can we trust what He's given us in His Word? Because the, where have we learned that being a wife and being a mother is not enough? Where have we learned that? The world teaches us that. Now, what what does the world think? Let's think about what the world thinks. The world thinks that the universe created itself by accident. And that the reason that women can breastfeed children is just by accident. They don't believe that there's any good design in any of that. They think gender is an accident. Sex is an accident. And they believe that we, as we develop by accident, started looking for meaning in life. And when we couldn't find any, because there isn't any if it's all a big accident that we just had to create God, and God was created by men, and that's why we have the patriarchy, and the patriarchy's bad. 
Are those the people you're listening to? The people that think everything's an accident and there's really no meaning in the earth and they're saying being a wife and a mother is not enough. Or, could we, could we, could we take it another way and say we believe in a God who made people male and female. We believe in a God who has ordered and given specific roles and ways that He would have us to live so that we might thrive and flourish. Can we trust that a wise God has said things and because we're sinful, we tend to, to, to misconstrue those things and abuse those things and turn them the wrong way to where people suffer under other people's heavy-handedness? Yes, that's true. But we, can, we believe that a wise God has given us His Word and if we'll trust it and we'll live it, that we'll thrive and flourish. So I don't want to get my wisdom from the world. Because I don't think that men and women existing is an accident. I don't think that women being able to breastfeed and nurture children, I don't think that that's an accident. I think all of that in nature is telling us something about the nature and the roles of men and women. Now that doesn't mean that and I'm not saying that you know, women should only stay home. I understand there are certain circumstances. People have to work outside the home. People have to do different things. But what I'm telling you, women, is don't listen to the world telling you that your most important job isn't being a wife and a mother. And don't let the world men tell you that your most important job is, is, is something other than being a husband. God created the home first. Well, it got quiet in here, didn't it? Everybody's like, what is he going to say? Uh, <laughs> The, the, the husbands are like, I'm not moving. <laughs> well, you think about it. I mean, I told Sawyer and I were talking about it yesterday, and I said, you know, men, men can build a house, but only a woman can really make a home. It's just something about it. Every man knows that. You know, you live in a college dorm for a few years, and you don't wash your sheets ever. <laughs> You don't have anything on the walls. I mean, it's just disgusting. And then you get married, and all of a sudden you're like, I like to come home. It doesn't smell in here. You know, and it's just a wonderful place that the woman can create. And she's just got a special knack and a, a special gift for it and a special way that she is with the children. And it's just wonderful. Women don't, and, and men don't ever forget what a wonderful thing a woman is. We live in a world that's trying to t say men and women are the same thing. They're not the same thing. Women are much better. Men were created out of dirt. <laughs> women were created out of ribs. Now what would you rather eat? <laughs> ribs are way better. Okay, you just make that argument. Okay, that's probably not a really good biblical argument, but... <laughs> But I mean, it's just an amazing thing. Don't, and, and so especially to young people. Can you imagine what a confusing time it is to live now, to grow up now, to see all the stuff they do on social media? Where there was a time less than 100 years ago, you know, Mother's Day is not even that old. And you know who started Mother's Day? You know who I thought started Mother's Day? Hallmark. You know, I thought that. The United States Congress and Woodrow Wilson started Mother's Day. Someone brought a bill up before Congress and they said, we need to recognize women and mothers because they're amazing. This is less than 100 years ago. And everybody said, yes, let's do that. President signs the bill. We've had Mother's Day and celebrated mothers and, and our, our celebrated our mothers ever since then. Less than 100 years later, what are we doing? 
We're living in a culture that is so confused, it will cut the breasts off perfectly healthy young people and tell that woman that she needs to be a man if that's what she feels like. We live in a society that's gone absolutely mad so to the point where you stand up and you preach the word of God and people say it's hateful. This is God loving us to give us his word. And I'm just saying, when you read that, it's telling women, be submissive to your own husbands. I know that that's hard to hear. You know what else is hard to hear? Men, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Now, if both people are doing that, your marriage will flourish and will thrive. If the man will say, my task in this marriage is to lay down my life for this woman, she will have no problem saying, you're the captain. You're laying your life down for me every single day. What do you think? And he says, well, what do you think? Well, let's talk about it. Let's think about it. Let's pray about it. That's the way a marriage works. It's not a man lording it over a woman. Is that the way you think about Jesus? How does Jesus deal with you? He's gentle, and he's lowly in spirit. We are to be, we're supposed to show our kids what the gospel looks like as we love our wives. And then the wife is supposed to show our children what the church looks like as they submit, as we submit to Jesus, the wife submits to the gracious, loving servant leadership of her husband. The wife is not to submit to commands that are illegal or immoral, but after all is said and all considerations are weighed, if there's disagreement, and there's never any submission if there's no disagreement, right? The Bible has said that the husband will be the captain. The Bible has said the husband will be the leader. Now what, why is it giving us that picture of the man as the captain and him leading and being responsible for his wife and her decisions ultimately? It's because in the garden what happened? What happened in the garden? Who should have been standing there saying, we're not doing this because God said if we eat from that tree, we're going to die. Don't listen to that snake. Don't taste that food. Who should have been doing that? Who let the woman down and fell down on his job? The man. And that threw, Christianity, uh, threw humanity under a curse, and we've been cursed ever since, with, born with a sin nature. But in the family and in the church... In the Christian family and in the Christian church, the curse is reversed. And the man who wanted to be passive and just stood there and let his wife lead the entire race into sin, and then he followed her, <laughs> when he should have taken the lead, that's going to be reversed in the church. It's going to be reversed in the family. The man who has a tendency to be passive is going to have to lead. And the woman, I don't even know if I should say this, who the, but the Bible says has a tendency to want to rule over her husband. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> She's going to have to submit. We're each going to have to do the thing that's hard for us. What is it going to do if we'll obey our Lord and Savior? What is it going to do if we'll listen to God's Word? It's going to show people that God is real. And they're going to say, what is this? Because there's nothing that stands out more in this culture than a Christian family that loves Jesus. And a husband who's laying down his wife for his life, uh, laying down his life for his wife. <laughs> I don't know what even that means. <laughs> and then, a, and then a, a wife who's submitting to the leadership of her husband. That is just going to blow people's minds. And what, is, what does Paul say that will do? If, if the young women will learn these things, then the word of God will not be reviled. 
the Word of God will be lifted up, not criticized, proven true. Then he moves to the younger men. We don't have much time. Let's, let's finish this. Look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Isn't that amazing that that's, I mean, it's pretty short there before he moves on to kind of including these things in with what he's telling Titus. But is there one thing that, guys, one thing that we need more than that? I don't think I can even think of what it would be. We need to be leading ourselves. We need to be in control of ourselves, not giving in to every passion or lust because we're bored or because we just feel like acting stupid. We need to be in control. There is, a, is it wrong to play video games? But there's a limit, right? And in everything we could possibly think of, there's a way that we can do that in a way that's in control and a way that's out of control. What's going to cause the Word of God to not be reviled if, man, if that young man has self-control? He will stand out amongst his peers because he lives in a, in a world that says, do whatever feels good and don't worry about it. To Titus, he says, show yourself, and he's still speaking to the young men here, I believe. Show yourself in all respects, young men, to be a model of good works. Just as with, I mentioned with the older women. Can I bring someone to you, young man, and say, this is a model to show you how to live. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. What is Paul saying to Titus and to the young men there on Crete in those churches? He's saying, young men, take your life seriously now. Be an example now. Show soundness in your belief now. Be a young man of gravity. Don't seem like a stupid, silly frat boy. And you know, the problem we have is, we've got the stupid, silly frat boys, and then they never grow up. And they become old men who are stupid, silly frat boys. Don't ever be that. And I'm not trying to criticize your fraternity. Uh, <laughs> just going with the generalization there. I love your frat. It's great. All right. But be one who is wise beyond his years, who is led by the Spirit. There's an emphasis here with the young men on speech and teaching, probably because it's directed at Titus. But the speech is to be solid and whole and irrefutable. There's a pattern in the Bible. You know what the young men are doing in the Bible? They're teaching. Isn't that amazing? When there's a problem to be straightened out, who were the two go-to guys? Titus and Timothy. The young men. Don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. But set an example in the way that you talk, in the way that you teach, and in the way that you live, in the way that you love. Are we expecting too little out of our young men? According to Scripture, we might be. Oh, boys will be boys. No, no. Even a child is known by his actions. And our young men can live in serious ways. And they can grow up to be serious, dedicated, devoted Christians. And you know, we're talking about young women. About them needing to be submissive to their husbands and to love their husbands and to love their children. Do you know what the biggest problem there is? Is when a young woman marries a man who doesn't love the Lord. And then really the advice, I remember Bobby and I have talked about this before, that I heard from one of my friends. He said, he said a great thing. He said, here's the advice to the young women that are unmarried. Make sure you marry a possessor of faith, not just a professor of faith. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, does he live it? 
Does he, does he line up as, a, as, a, as one who's self-control here, who's digni- dignified, who's sober-minded, who's serious about his faith? Because if he's not that, don't marry him. You're going to wind up in a world of hurt if you love the Lord and you marry someone who doesn't care about the thing you love the most. And that's hard. I understand that because there's a drive and a desire when you're a young woman to want to get married. But what's, what is most important is that we submit to God's Word and you need to marry a man who will lay down his life for you the way Christ loved the church. And when we do, so there's two ways of doing things. Okay, this is what I've learned in biblical counseling. You can make it really easy. If you just say, all right, do you believe the Bible? Yes. Okay, there's two ways of doing things. There's your way and God's way. Are you doing it your way or God's way? And most of the times when there's a problem and things aren't working out, you know what people say? I'm doing it my way. I am, I am actually doing the opposite of what God has said to do. And then you just turn into Dr. Phil on him. You, How's that working for you? They <clears throat> say, it's terrible. I'm not happy. I'm miserable. But we can do things the way God says to do it. And even though the world will say, that's the patriarchy, that's hateful, that's bigoted, that's backwards, that's on the wrong side of history. I'll tell you what, there's nothing uh, that will bring more joy to a person than being part of a Christian home. There's nothing you can bless a child with more than being part of a Christian home. That you and your husband or your wife, that y'all covenant together, we are going to have a house. As for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And there's no greater blessing. You can live in a palace, and there's plenty of people that live in palaces all over the world, and big houses and mansions, and have all this money, and they're miserable. Even though they're doing all the things that the world says to do to be happy. And then you go down, and I've been to them, you go to the slum in the South African city, and you go down to where the, the, they live in a corrugated tin house with a dirt floor, and they love the Lord, and the house is full of joy. <clears throat> Don't listen to the world when it comes to this. Make sure we're listening to God's Word. And so young men... The world will tell you, this is okay, this is the way to live, this is the way to live, this is the way to live. Here's how I want you to live. Here's the way the Bible says to live. It says, live in a way where people observe you, they say, that boy is wise beyond his years. He is led by the Spirit of God. I want my kids to learn from him. Young man, your life needs to back up your message, but your message is important. Your message is important. Paul, Paul knew that Timothy and Titus knew how to teach. And, and there's no excuse when we have Bibles and we have the internet and we have books and we have all the teaching. There's no excuse for a dad to not be able to share the gospel with his kids when they come of age. Every single dad is a shepherd in his home. He should be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with his own kids. I love it when you come to me. But I love it more when you lead your child to Christ. Don't waste these years, young men. These are the years to devote yourself to the Lord and to the Word of God and to the study of the Word of God, to discuss it, to learn it, to teach it, to spend time with people who love it. 
And when you do, when you decide, I'm going to study God's Word, you will find that you will become a man of God, you'll become a better dad, you'll be better with your finances, you'll be a better husband, a better church man, you'll be a better teacher, a better friend, and a better employee. If you will devote yourself to learning God's words. So we've had the instructions to all the people that live in a house, right? In in a Roman house, you had the older people, the younger people, the men, the women. And now he moves down to something that was very common in the Roman Empire, which was bond servitude. What we call slavery. Now, slavery in the, the Roman Empire was different than the North American Atlantic slave trade that we're used to, the chattel slavery. Uh, People became slaves in all different ways. Remember, there's no welfare. And so a lot of times when people were destitute, they might sell themselves into slavery, and they would say, if you'll feed me and clothe me and provide me with a place to stay, I'll work for you, I'll be your bondservant. Now, there are rules in Scripture for the way bond servitude worked. In the Roman Empire, uh, the people were not so kind to their slaves. Uh, Slavery, to be a slave, was a terrible thing. And your master basically had complete control over you. If he, could, if he accused you of something and said that you deserved to be killed, the master could kill the slave. That was how brutal the Roman Empire was. Okay? Often slavery was not for life, but sometimes it was, especially for those that had been conquered as prisoners of war. It was a very brutal time to be alive. It was a very brutal time to be a slave. And Paul says to these bondservants who've become, but, but also is a little bit different, uh, you know, in the fact that someone who was a member of a household as a servant could go to church, they could have a business, they could have money. And so there were some of these bondservants that uh, had become Christians and were part of the church, and Paul is telling them, not, uh, verse 9, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That they may adorn the doctrine of salvation is what he's really saying that. And so here you have these slaves who tended to be treated uh, possibly very terribly. And I guess Paul could have said different things. Uh, One of the things he could have said, I guess, was... um, Y'all need to rise up against your masters and start a a movement where you try to overthrow the Roman Empire. What would have happened if Paul would have told the slaves to do that? They'd all been killed. And so he doesn't say to do that. He says, do what your master tells you to do. Please them. Don't be argumentative. Now, in other places, he tells those slave owners in the church that have bondservants in their house that they're to treat their... They're uh, slaves of reverence and humility. Imagine that in the Roman Empire telling someone who can lord it over a slave to serve their slave. That's the kind of upside-down kingdom we're talking about here. And so Paul says, live this way in front of your masters that they may see that you are changed and you are different and you might adorn or make beautiful the gospel of the salvation of God. And so right there in that first century when Paul writes that, It didn't overthrow slavery. But what eventually happened over the years? Eventually over the years, as people began to read their Bibles, obey their Bibles, as as the teachings of Christ began to influence the way that laws were made and the way that governments operated, people realized, "You, 
You, we can't say that we're Christian and steal someone's labor. We can't say that we're Christian and kidnap somebody. And so what eventually happened is, you can read about William Wilberforce and the way that slavery was abolished in England, is eventually they just said, we can't live like this and still do this. And slavery wound up being abolished by the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we would say, we're so glad that right now in the world there's no more slavery. But that's not true, is it? There's even a big movie. There's two big movies out right now. One is Indiana Jones movie, and there's another one called The Sound of Freedom. And this movie about modern-day human trafficking and slavery is outperforming the Indiana Jones movie. And it's opening people's eyes to the idea of child uh, trafficking, human trafficking that's going on. That right now, I think Melissa's told me the status, something like, right now there are more people enslaved than have ever been enslaved in the history of the earth. <laughs> that's crazy, isn't it? We, and we can't imagine, but that's what the Bible says. The Bible says we live in that kind of world. You know, the Bible's very clear that, that there's no one good, no one does right, no one seeks after the Lord. That's why we need Jesus and we need to continue that fight then. Who's on the cutting edge of trying to abolish the human trafficking and slavery and trying to abolish the idea that you can go in and take a baby out of a woman's womb and kill it? Who's on the cutting edge of trying to take the biblical principles and to apply them to abortion and to slave trading and all these things? It's the Christians. And once again, the gospel will prevail. One day we'll realize this is right. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. My invitation to you this morning is to do it now. And don't wait. And don't delay. Make beautiful the doctrine of God our Savior. Where are you? Where are you as we read these? You know, you might apply those, those instructions to bond servitude you might apply those to your, your employment and say, what kind of employee am I? Am I the kind of employee that's lazy and steals time or am I the one that's working to please his master, his employer? What kind of employer are you? Are you one that's setting an example by the way that you live or are you a hypocritical leader? Is your life and your experience in the household of God, is it showing others that God is real? Or is it just showing other people that you're not real? When we come to this household code, when we come to this passage that's telling us here's what a, a Christian life looks like, here's what it means to be living for Jesus. Is your life showing that God is real? It's unpleasant to teach these things. It's like jumping into the quicksand. It's like pulling the piranhas into the boat and pulling them out and examining them and saying, well, these are the things that will really hurt us. These are the things that will take us under. But these things matter. Because these are the places where we're going to get hung up. These are the places where it's hard to live in fellowship and community. These are the life and death of a church. So let's commit ourselves today that we will live for Jesus. That we will live in such a way that we will show a lost and dying world, not by our own power, but by what Christ is doing in us, we will show a lost and dying world and we'll show each other that God is real.